You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Um, with that said, let's jump in because we've got a, a bit of work to do this morning. Uh, we are in the third sermon uh, in our series on revival, the third of five, so we're right dead in the middle of it. Um, and throughout the series so far, we have defined revival as simply this, the ordinary grace of God at work in extraordinary measure, right? So when we think about revival, when we think about the idea of revival, that's where we want our heads to go. The ordinary grace of God, the saving grace of God, the sanctifying grace of God, the assuring grace of God, right? All of those aspects of God's grace get experienced on a a heightened level, an extraordinary level during periods of revival. And yet what we have done and what we've painfully tried to do throughout the past couple of weeks is make it very clear that the work of revival is not something that we can manufacture, right? So if we turned the temperature up high enough, if we played the songs in the right key, if I prayed fervently enough, if I sweat more when I preached, right, then we would have revival, That's not the case. We've said time and time again that revival, the work of revival, is a sovereign grace of God, but that there are means by which we can pursue it. So if we think of it like this, in a ship, a sailing ship metaphor, we can hoist the proverbial sails in hopes that the wind will blow, the winds of revival will come, fill up our sails, and take us into that extraordinary experience of God's manifold grace to us. So that's what we're praying for. That's what we're asking for. And that's what we are talking about over the following weeks, those means that we can devote ourselves to. So we've spoken about the means of prayer, how there's been much prayer without revival in human history, but there's never been revival without prayer. And we talked about how that prayer often consists of praying to the Lord for a pure heart, which we talked about last week. And then this week we'll talk about devotion, full-hearted devotion, both individually and corporately together. So there's a marked difference between a revival that's prayed down and a revival that is worked up, right? When revival truly comes, it affects everything, both from the preaching all the way to the family devotional time at home. I want us to read an account of a revival from uh, 17th century England. Uh, There's a pastor that was there by the name of Richard Baxter, and he chronicled it um, in his journals. And this is what he he writes, telling us about that revival in that town. He says, The congregation was usually full. Our private meetings were also full. On the Lord's day, there was no disorder in the streets. But you might hear 100 families singing songs and repeating sermons as you passed in the street. In a word, when I came here at first, there was about one family in a street that worshipped God and called on His name. And when I came away, there were some streets where there was not one family on either side of the street that did not do so, and that did, by their profession of serious godliness, give us hopes of their sincerity. And so Richard Baxter, when he talks about a revival, what does he say? He says, yes, we had a crowd. Yes, the meetings were full. But more importantly, 
by their profession of serious godliness, gave us hope of their sincerity. So what is he saying? He's saying that when the revival comes, not only do people start coming around the church, gathering together more, singing and praying and repeating sermons and learning about God and the gospel, but that that evidences itself in the people's devotion to him. So much so that the streets are littered with his praises from his people. And so for a moment, can we just imagine, which we probably haven't up to this point, imagine if our streets were comprised of not just us on the block worshiping Jesus, but that the whole street either side would worship Jesus and would evidence their worship of Jesus with serious godliness. That's what we're praying for and that's what we're looking for as we talk about this full-hearted devotion as an evidence and a means of revival. Let's pray and we'll let Jesus define devotion for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning, this time to be gathered together as your people. And I do pray, Lord, that we would consistently be reminded that the reason that we are gathered together is not because we share uh, an affinity, uh, a certain life stage, um, a, a certain theological stream, uh, Lord, but that above and beyond all of that, we have been drawn together because we are first united to Christ and in Him we are united to one another. And so, Lord, I just pray that um, because we are your children, that this morning you would feed us. That by your Spirit, you would give us what only you can give, which is yourself. And Lord, that you would speak to us very clearly through your word this morning. And that we might leave changed. That we might leave more fully devoted to who you've called and created us to be and what you've saved and sent us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so since we're going to talk about devotion this morning, it behooves us to ask the question, what is devotion? What does it mean to be devoted? And by God's grace in Luke 14, Jesus defines it for us. So he tells us what devotion is and what it means to be devoted to him. So let's read. It says this in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is your first Sunday. Welcome. Glad you're here. I like to call these texts space makers. This is strong language from Jesus, right? If anyone does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, right, that should cover everything. Then that person can't be my disciple. Jesus is saying, if there's anything that stands above me, if there's anything that comes before me, you can't be my disciple. And he starts with the family. Now, let me just get through a word here and explain it so that we're not confused about the text. I do think that um, many of us would read this and go, wait a minute. Jesus has spent his entire ministry telling us to essentially do two things, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love others as yourself. So how do these two things 
inform each other? When did the message turn, right? Where did we, where did we end up with this word hate? And what we just need to know is that Luke is writing for a particular audience and that the, the word hate in this instance is a Semitic phrase which means to love less, which is why when we read the same passage or the same moment of Jesus' life in Matthew, it's comparative. He says, if anybody loves mother and father, brother and sister, children, wife, more than me, they can't be my disciple. So that's, that's all he's saying here. I don't want that to become a barrier for us to understanding what it is that Jesus is, is calling us into. But let's make another observation really briefly. Why does, why does Jesus start with family? It's pretty simple in that in the first century, your family network was the highest cultural value that you could establish, right? Your lineage, your genealogy, your family, your relational network was your security. It was your prestige. It was your honor. It was what, what, you, what you would care for and what you would cultivate in order to give your, your kids and your kids' kids and your future generations the future that you would long for them to have. It was the source of cultural value. That's why genealogies matter so much in the Bible. That's when you start off in Matthew chapter 1 and you have to read all the names you can't pronounce and you wonder why you're subjecting yourself to that. It actually matters. It matters. And it especially matters in who's pointed out in Jesus' lineage in particular, but that's another sermon. So Jesus is getting straight to the heart of the matter. He's going to the culture's highest value and he's saying, if you don't value me more than that, you can't be my disciple. If I'm not your primary allegiance, you can't be my disciple. And so contrary maybe to popular belief, right, Jesus is not the plant that really pulls the whole room together. You know, it's like I've got all these good things that I really like and then I've got Jesus for this empty corner over here that I just kind of need to fill to enhance the, the feng shui of our life. What Jesus is saying is that in order for him to be brought into our room, he inevitably and irrevocably changes its entire order. That, that to come to Jesus and to be a disciple of Jesus is to have all of our lives rearranged, to have all of our priorities upended in the favor of making him first that he becomes our highest value. And it's not over and above just family, it's over and above our own life, right? That's what he says at the end of verse 32. And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Continuing into verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desires to build a tower and does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Right, so it's not just Jesus over family, it's Jesus over our own lives, right? Even the lives of Jesus' listeners in this moment are expected to be subject to the rulership of Jesus in their, in their hearts. So much so that he uses what might be one of the more shocking metaphors in the Bible, if not the most. And that he says to be a disciple is to take up one's cross 
and to follow him. Now, we don't witness many crucifixions, although they do still happen, just not in the United States that, that I'm aware of. But for the people who are listening to Jesus in, the, in, in this moment, it, it, it would not be a far cry to guess that they maybe had witnessed one a few days ago or maybe even just on their way to go hear Jesus. And so this would have been clear in their minds, clear understanding of what that meant for them. They would have known that to be crucified was not an instant death. It was not a, a uh, merciful death in any way. It was vindictive. It was vengeful. It was utterly excruciating in that what killed you was not even necessarily the agony or the pain of, of the physical harm that was inflicted, but rather the fact of consistently having to fight whether or not your muscles were too exhausted to allow you to breathe and to the point where your muscles just give out and you asphyxiate. A slow, painful death, not numbered in minutes, not even numbered in hours sometimes, often numbered in days for people who are subjected to that kind of execution. And that's what Jesus says following him means. And so again, here we see a call to completely abandon not only our families, but ourselves in order to make him first. A call to completely put to death the old life, to crucify that in us which is not loyal to Jesus. Our ego, our dreams, our ambitions. And in describing it this way, Jesus makes it clear that that journey is no quick journey, right? It's slow and it's painful. That's why he doesn't say hang the old self or shoot the old self. It's not going to happen in an instant. It's not going to happen in a moment. But this journey, painful though it may be, slow though it may be, agonizing though it may be, is non-negotiable for the disciple of Jesus. Which is why he encourages them to count the cost, right? That's why he says, who of you builds a tower without first sitting down to count whether or not he has what is necessary to complete it? Or he uses the military example. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able? And so Jesus, knowing that this walk of following him, knowing that this walk of being counted his disciples, among his disciples, is costly, would have us to consider that cost. Because Jesus is being very clear here that he doesn't necessarily promise us better life circumstances, even though he's promising a better life. Those are two very, very different things. Finally, Jesus would have us to be willing to give up 
all things, right? In verse 33, what does he say? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So here's the thing. Some of us, or maybe even some of Jesus' audience up to this point would have been like, family, no big deal. I, I have leprosy. I'm totally disowned. Nobody cares about me. It doesn't matter. It's no loss for me. Maybe they would say, to life, like, what is life? I don't, again, I don't have a family. I don't have any real cultural value. I'm an outcast. Great. You want my family? You want my life? You can have them. They don't mean anything to me. And so Jesus just goes ahead and covers all the bases, right? Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has. Comprehensive. So even if it's the tiniest and smallest thing that you have, but you cherish it, and you cherish it to a degree that it subjugates Jesus to that thing, you can't be his disciple. Maybe if we were Jesus' primary audience, that one would have come first. Because I think often for us, it, it's, it's material possessions, right, that actually get in the way of our family, Right? When people die and wills get divvied up and somebody got this and the other person got that and then it's like, well, we don't talk anymore because, right? Just because we have a different highest cultural value doesn't mean we don't have one and it doesn't mean that we don't have one that we need to be wary of and that Jesus himself is calling us now to renounce. And so here's the main point of all of it, right? Beyond even just the three examples, the main point that Jesus is trying to make is that if we claim to be disciples and love anything more than him, then our loves are disordered. They're out of order. And disordered love is the source of most, if not all, damage in our lives, right? Both on a practical level and on a spiritual level, right? Practically, the father who loves his job more than his children causes damage. The husband or wife who loves their independence more than their spouse causes damage. The employer who loves profit more than his employees causes damage. In fact, a, a well-known uh, ancient theologian, Augustine, said that disordered love is the essence of sin. That the moment that we place anything above Jesus is the moment that we step into sin that even beyond the action that takes place from a sinful heart, the heart is actually repositioned in that moment. That the moment that we love something more than Jesus, the moment that we put something above him is the moment that we step into, we usher ourselves into this openness to betrayal, to betrayal of Jesus. So Jesus defines devotion um, comprehensively and soberingly. Devotion for Jesus is a devotion to God that is irrevocable. A devotion in which we irrevocably give Him all things. Devotion is to order our loves rightly. It's not to say that I don't love my wife. It's not to say that I don't love my child. It's not that I, to say that I don't share care and concern for the things of this world, but it is to say that before and above and over all of those things, I would never allow any one of those things to compromise my faithfulness to God. 
even just saying that for me makes me a little nervous because I can feel it in my own heart that in, there are areas where that's not true. And yet that's the devotion that Jesus says is necessary for a disciple. And that that begins the moment that we confess and believe. That in the moment that we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and we believe upon him in faith, we receive his grace, we're saved, that in that moment we begin giving our very selves over to him in order to be set apart for his service. That in that moment we pick up our cross and we slowly and agonizingly and painfully mark out all of the areas in our lives in which we are unfaithful to him and we ask him to make us devoted. Anytime we choose anything over him, our loves are out of order and so our devotion to him is watered down or wholly given over to something else. And so we're to be de fully devoted to God in Christ Jesus and it's important for us to count the cost. But what I love about it is that Anytime there's a cost for us, at least a seeming cost, it's because there's a better and more glorious future that's already been laid out for us in Jesus. Jesus becomes more lovely as we investigate him. And so it becomes easier to reorder our loves when we see him for who he really is, when we see him for how lovely he is, right? Because here's the thing. I think we read Luke 14 and we go, man, I liked the for God so loved the world, Jesus. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I like that Jesus. This Jesus is scary. And yet, it's the same Jesus of John 3.16 that's giving us Luke 14. And so there is a sense in which what is costly is also still and remains beautiful. That there is a way in which this cost is utterly outweighed by the benefit. Let's just take Jesus' word as an example. Right? He tells us to sacrifice family. He tells us to sacrifice our lives. He tells us to sacrifice all of our possessions. Why is that? Well, because in him, we have a better family. In him, we're adopted into the family of God himself. We're brothers and sisters of Jesus. We're now brought into, invited into the communion of Father, Son, and Spirit that has existed in perfect harmony before time began. We're invited into that family. And that family is compri comprised of other brothers and sisters from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So your family lacks no measure of diversity that the world could ever possibly try to keep you from enjoying. You have a better family in Jesus. What about, what about your life? Well, it's the same thing. In Jesus, you have a better life. In Jesus right? We're given his life, not only his perfect life, not only his pleasing to God life, but all the more gloriously we're given his eternal life. And so everything that takes place here is, as Paul says, a mist of vapor in comparison to that life which we've been given in Christ. Eternal life in the safety and security of his family's name the only family of consequence in all of the universe. 
And what about possessions? Well, in Christ, we have better possessions, right? More than Jesus' family and more than Jesus' life, we're given Jesus himself as a possession. He is ours and we are his as his bride and he is our groom. It is the most valuable thing that we could ever hope to own. Jesus himself. And so I think we've stumbled upon the meaning of Jesus' words in Matthew 6.33 when he says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. And I think we can pretty safely discern that that phrase that he uses there in Matthew 6 is not to call down blessings from on high so that you might drive a CTS with black rims. Right? But so that so that we might truly live in the peace and in the freedom of the knowledge that if we seek Him, in Him we receive everything that we could possibly want, that there's a fullness, a satisfaction that we will feel when we meet Him face to face. Because now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see clearly. And you know what's going to happen? That moment when you meet Jesus face to face, if you've if you've called upon his name for salvation, all those little corners and crevices of longing in your heart that went unfilled will be filled to the brim and overflowing with one simple, simple and single thing, utter satisfaction. Utter satisfaction in him. And so we can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all of these things can and will be and are going to be added unto us in him. Some of us may still be asking the question, what gives Jesus the right to demand this kind of allegiance from us? Even with all of those benefits, those are future benefits. I don't know, how, right? There is a sense in which we experience them now, but there's still pain, there's still agony, right? The agony of discipleship. What gives Jesus the right to demand this from us? We could end this whole sermon really quickly and just say because he's king and go home early, but I'm going to give us some other reasons why I think that he has the right. And not only the other right, but that he's kind in doing so. And here's why. Jesus isn't just the king. He's the king who suffered first what he asks us now to suffer. Again, Jesus calls us to give up family, give up our life, give up our possessions, right? What did Jesus himself do? King of the universe, upholder of all things by his power, Jesus gives up his family. He leaves the Father and the Spirit with whom he'd been engaged in perfect harmonic union from the beginning in order to dwell among us. Jesus gives up his life, right? He's not only made into the form of a man, which is a debasement enough for someone as glorious and wonderful as him, but he was obedient even to death within that form, within his earthly body. He was obedient to death. And Jesus gave up his possessions. There's no greater possession than divinity. And yet he took it and he melded it with humanity. 
He came to dwell among us. The riches and the praise and the glories of heaven, the presence of His Father, the adoration of the angels, the worship of the stars. And He was born into a manger and lived 33 short years into a death on a cross in relative obscurity. And you want to know why Jesus did that? It's because Jesus is fully devoted. It's because Jesus is fully devoted to God's redemptive work and the people that that work includes, meaning you and me. And so Jesus goes before us and he does not ask us to follow him anywhere that he has not himself been. And so he is empathetic to the real losses that we will face for his name's sake. We will lose things if we follow Jesus. Nothing in your life is safe when you follow Jesus. But when Jesus makes this ask, he's aware, well aware of what he's asking. It's not blind, it's not callous, it's not hopeless, it's not unsympathetic. In fact, just as Jesus endured all of this for the joy set before him, so we also have an immense joy set before us that encourages us along the way. And that's why next week we'll talk about suffering as a means to revival. So brothers and sisters, how can we not reorder our loves for this Jesus? This King of kings and Lord of lords who could have easily stood up and from heaven demanded our allegiance and justly punished us when we failed on our own. But instead, took it upon himself to come down, to lose the things that we deserve to lose so that we might gain them in him in their perfect and pure and harmonious state. How can we not respond to this kind of grace with that kind of full-hearted devotion, that utter willingness to be cut off, to be separated from anything else that we might consider valuable in this near term so that we might experience what is wondrous and glorious in the time that is coming? Brothers and sisters, again, it's easy for us to look at this and think of Jesus as some cosmic killjoy. But it is no disservice to us for Jesus to call us to full devotion to the only thing that will truly and fully satisfy us. It's no disservice. It's a glorious, majestic, magnificent grace that he bestows upon us. And so both a sign and a means of revival is this full-hearted devotion, this reordering of loves in such a way that by our sincere godliness, we prove that our hearts have indeed been revived, filled with the glory of Jesus by the power of the Spirit to the wonder of the Father. And so it's 
It's very much oscillating like we talked about last week, right? How purity of heart leads to pure longing and how pure longing leads us to purity of heart because we're, that's what we end up longing for, right? Well, in the same way, reordered loves lead us to a revived devotion, a revived willingness to lose for the sake of Jesus, to be devoted to God's word, to be devoted to prayer, to be devoted to God's people, to be devoted to good deeds in the world around us. That comes when we order our loves rightly. And we don't do that just individually. We do it together, right? This is what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see the progression there? When revival comes, we long for pure hearts. And when we long for pure hearts, what do we do? We commit ourselves to Jesus. We devote ourselves to Him by doing what? Flee youthful passions. Pursuing Him in His righteousness, His faith, His love, His peace that He's granted to us in Himself along with all those who call on the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, we're not only called to an individual devotion to Jesus where we count the cost, but we are together called to a devotion to Jesus where we all count the cost together. And where we, from a pure heart, flee youthful passions, pursue peace, love, righteousness, faith, along with all those who call on the Lord. And so, how do we reorder our loves? if it's reordering our loves, if it's putting Jesus in his right place in our lives that leads to this kind of revived devotion to his word and to prayer and to others and to good deeds, how do we do that? Well, it's just like everything else that we've talked about for the duration of this series. It goes back to weeks one and weeks two. It starts on our knees in prayer because this is not something that we can manufacture I already know that there are places in my life that I need to bring before the Lord and ask Him to put Himself on the throne and to kick that idol off. That's where it starts. It starts in prayer, in appealing to God, in His power, in His Spirit, and His ability to actually do that for us. And it's in eager and ongoing and honest confession. Asking the Lord to give us a pure heart. Asking the Lord to remove those loves or to put them in their right place underneath Him. And so we pray and we take confession seriously. And by God's grace, we'll have our loves reordered and it will express itself in a revived devotion. But here's where I want to finish. And it's not the most uplifting end of a sermon I've ever given. Why does Jesus say these things at this time? Luke 14, 25, right? Now great crowds accompanied him. This is a pivotal moment in Jesus' career as a minister, right? Great crowds have come along, right? This is the moment where you would kind of be like, okay, Jesus, let's Tone it down and let's go back to the whole grace, love, and mercy thing. Let's keep these people around, right? I want to make sure that people are catered to. And yet this is the moment when Jesus delivers arguably one of his most uncomfortable 
passages of Scripture. And you want to know why that is? It's because Jesus knows that he has a crowd, but he's not at all convinced that he has a revival on his hands. There's a lot of people following Jesus, but there's not a lot of disciples of Jesus in this crowd. There's a lot of people who are excited at uh, the possibility that he might heal someone or that he might meet one of their needs or that he might be able to do something cool in front of them. But not a lot of people who want to be called to lay down all that they have. And yet Jesus knows that if people are to be revived, that's going to have to be the ask. So he's not willing to soften his message. He's not willing to compromise on what it takes. He's not willing to keep from us what it takes to follow him in order that we might actually follow him. And so I just want to leave us with two questions. Are you a follower or are you a disciple? And maybe there's a question that will help you answer that. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? And if your mind is frantically scrambling to think of something right now, then maybe we need to examine ourselves. If it costs us nothing to follow Jesus, could it be possible that we're not following Jesus? I think Jesus would say yes. And so this is a warning that we need, brothers and sisters. In a cultural Christianity that so often tells us that Jesus is all about our personal needs, all about our personal comfort, all about the harmony within our homes and within our lives, all about us. And there is a sense in which some of those things are true, but in the absence of this message, brothers and sisters, we could be tempted to simply worship ourselves instead of Him. And there's something really dangerous and terrible that happens when that happens. And Jesus describes it for us at the very end of the chapter. He says this in verses 34 and 35, and this is where we'll conclude. Jesus says, Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Brothers and sisters, any Christianity that does not require a full-hearted devotion to Jesus and to his word and to his people and to the prayers and to good deeds is a counterfeit Christianity that's as worthless as unsalty salt. As worthless as a $3 bill. It doesn't exist. And brothers and sisters, right now, if we want to see revival happen, now is the time for a full-hearted corporate devotion to King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning again. We're grateful to be among your people. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who are Christians in the room. And Lord, we feel 
the sting of this text. We recognize areas of our lives that we've not given over to you, Father, and we pray that you would do the work of surgery. That this pain, God, would not be pain for punishment's sake, but pain for the sake of healing. That we might experience a renewed, a restored, a revived devotion to you in all things. Lord, I pray for those of us in the room who maybe walked in this morning and we thought we were Christians, or maybe we still think we are. And yet when we weigh up our life, it has cost us little to nothing to follow Jesus. Lord, would you help us to think soberly? And Lord, if we are Christians, would you assure us by your Spirit that your grace has come upon us? And if we're not, Father, may we repent and believe for the first time this morning. And I pray for those of us, God, who um, walked in. We know we're not Christians. Pray, Father, that just by your grace and through the work of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would make this gospel of grace known to them. Lord, that they would truly be able to see with clear eyes that it is the kindness of you, God, that leads us to repentance. That you're not up there vindictively calling us to this devotion, but that you have offered us everything we need with which to see it through. Father, thank you for the comfort of the promise of Matthew 28 that you are with us even until the end of the age. And so in spite of the fact that this is a slow and often painful and often agonizing journey of discipleship, you will complete the good work that you have begun because you're faithful. And so Lord, as we come to your table this morning, pray that you'd encourage us by your spirit, that you'd remind us of the cost that you were willing to pay and that we would be willing to give in the same measure if it was possible. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.